VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? When you look at something that is so critical to every American and them not having to pay for it, it just, it felt so wrong. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. Thank you for tuning in. I really do appreciate it. We have got a good one for you this week. Nicole Mustard is on the program, and I think this is one that you will truly relish. Get it? Mustard. Relish. I know, it's hilarious. Anyhow, Mustard is one of the three founders of Credit Karma, which is one of the most valuable fintech companies in the world. Uh, Last valuation was around $4 billion. And they got there by giving away a bunch of stuff for free. The main lure is free credit reports. So they offer that as a way to kind of lure you in, to suck you in. And once you've signed up, they give away a bunch of other stuff like tax prep and other kind of advice. And so once you have opened the kimono to your financial life, they start recommending stuff, personal loans, credit cards, uh, what have you, and whatever you sign up for, they collect a fee. And this model has proven wildly successful. So more than 85 million Americans use Credit Karma today, including half of all millennials. And as of next month, they'll be attempting to repeat that trick in Britain where they recently bought a little company called Noddle. So, I sat down with Mustard to talk about what the company is up to, and also her very unlikely route to where she is. Spoiler alert, it involves Pizza Hut. Lots of Pizza Huts. So we talk about that. Uh, We also talk about how you build trust in an industry full of shadiness and dodginess, and how one day she hopes to take control of all of our financial lives. Yeah, big plans. So, without further ado, I now give you Nicole Mustard. Enjoy. So, I have many questions. I love it. So, a lot of our listeners are overseas, and I know you just made a move over to the UK, but can you explain what is the uh, what is Credit Karma? What's the elevator pitch? So, I mean, our mission is to help consumers make financial progress. And when you think about credit scores, they are a core component of both your access to credit and the pricing of your credit, but it's really just a means to an end. So in the US, we started with free credit score. And over the last three or four years, we've been broadening that to things far beyond your your credit score, whether that's free taxes, free identity management, free money. Hold on, free taxes. Free taxes. Don't you love it? Like truly free. Like not what's the, what's like, the catch? You selling you selling my data to some 
dodgy company, so then I'm going to get spammed with ads or something. Absolutely not. So everything that we do, uh, we fortress your data, which means all the data that we receive from you or receive from third parties about you stays within our walls. It's used within our walls to make your experience as delightful as we can and make sure that we show you offers that are most relevant for you or show you content or experiences that could be most valuable to helping you make financial progress. So is this kind of like the, um, the Google model? Like search is free, Gmail's free, maps are free, you're offering all this stuff and then I become a super loyal customer. And then you can start recommending stuff, and then you get a cut of that deal if it, something happens. Is that yeah, the so idea? we've we sort of termed it the win-win-win model. So when consumers find a product that is valuable and is something that they want, and lenders find a consumer that is in the approval zone of the types of consumers that they're looking for, when those two come together and get approved or for a loan, they get funded. Credit Karma shares in that monetization. Got you. Right, but gotcha. we really like it because when we started the business, everything was about clicks, or they were even about impressions, and it was all about like, how do I put more impressions on a page, or how do I drive people to click? But it wasn't about the consumer or about the lender, and so we went immediately to the bottom of the funnel and said, no, it's only when we make that marriage, when two things that want each other. So when find it's con- when there's a conversion, that's right, 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 and the conversion for cards is is going to be an approval, but a conversion for personal loans or auto is going to be a funding of that loan. Right. Right. So it's even further beyond that, which is, you know, people have tried to move down to conversions, but they still, most of our peers haven't been able to get down to the funded position because they just don't have the data. Can we talk about credit scores? I love it. I'm so... (laughs) I do. (laughs) Not many people say that. So many of them. I wasn't prepared for that response. (laughs) Love it. Um, So I'm interested in credit scores because it's like this number that is, can kind of determine so much of what happens in your life or what you can and cannot do. Is it evolving? Because you see, I, you see at least anecdotally, there's a stuff our companies are looking at what you're doing on social media, or there's all these like little bits and pieces of information o- online. And I don't know how much of that is actually being put into the soup or yeah. kind of where we are in terms of how a credit score gets baked. Yeah. So I think you're starting to see a lot of testing with new types of credit score models in the US, less so internationally. Mm. You'll, you'll see things like reputation scores internationally, um, but not true credit. So TransUnion is coming out with a new credit score that adds in your utility bills as well as your cell phones. If you think about for so many consumers that don't own a home, a majority of their monthly payments are things that they've subscribed yeah. to, right? So there's even discussion like, oh, should we add Netflix, right? Like, Is that a real discussion? Uh, people are, are talking about things that you're subscribing to. And well, because that's a whole time. other discussion about the whole life of, you know, your whole life is going to be subscriptions. You have mm-hmm. Amazon Prime, Netflix, Spotify, yep. et cetera. Your right. car, ultimately. Absolutely. So right now they're they're focused on what's called alternative data. So like some people are building rental databases, working with property managers to make sure that you get credit for those on-time monthly payments. There's utilities, there's cell phone bills. Um, and they're trying to find other areas where you're making monthly payments and add that to your credit file so that they have a more complete view of how you manage all of your finances and not just your loans and your cards today. What is it based on now? I'm always a bit, you know, if I forget to pay something, I'm always like, hmm, I don't know if that's going to affect my credit. I hope it doesn't. Yeah, I'm actually worried because I'm really bad with my Verizon account. 
I'm yeah, always like, for example, eh, you know, yeah. it's a hundred bucks, 120 yeah. bucks. Like I'll get to it when I get yeah. to it. And I don't even know if there's a fee on it, but like, yeah. I always pay my credit cards on time and I always pay my mortgage on time because I'm like, ah, I know that affects my credit. So today, mainly anything that is with a major financial institution or credit union. So your car payments, your mortgage payments, your credit card payments, personal loan payments, any type of lending asset, secured or insecure, your home equity payment is on your credit report. But again, those alternative elements are not. And do you think that'll change? Because listeners will be bored of this story, but I was talked to a company recently, you know, John Hancock, the insurance company. Mm Mm-hmm. They just announced that they're not doing any more, quote unquote, old school life insurance. Okay. All life insurance going forward is going to have some kind of digital live element. You know, they'll, everybody has a Fitbit or an Apple Watch and they, if you take 10,000 steps every day, whatever, you can actually cut your bills. And it's kind of a, an ongoing monitoring rather than you take a physical once and then you have this same bill for the next 20 years. They're not doing that anymore. Yeah. Is there a similar movement? So so the, the key thing people or lenders are looking for in this instance, insurers are looking for, is are you on the upward escalator yeah. or the downward escalator? <laughs> so you can have 100 people in a yeah. room with a 662 credit score, but they're going all different directions at all different trajectories, and it's really hard to tell. So a couple of years ago, a few of the bureaus introduced what's called trended data. So they'll give you data across thousands of elements uh, back to plus years. So you can see the direction and the volatility and you can sort of see like how far have they ever gotten in debt and were they how quickly were they able to recover? So you can right. tell more about the consumer. I personally as a consumer and an individual love the idea of real time pricing because it takes the the cost of the averages out. But in the weeks where I'm not doing well, let's just say I get sick, is my you know, is my life insurance gonna go up? Like right. I wouldn't be super excited about that. But you see it across all the industries. So in auto insurance, they now have the dongles, which actually connect to mm-hmm. your motorboard, or they can put it on your digital devices to, to understand where you're driving, when you're driving, how many yeah. hard stops you have, how many passengers. Hopefully they don't keep track of like how loud my kids are in the car. Yeah. Uh, but that's or if you're texting. Yeah, definitely. If you're texting, that's just horrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you do think that is that that model is changing, or at least there's yeah, going to be some new elements? Because it, sh- it feels like a lot of these things are kind of shockingly old, given how much things have advanced in terms of how much information we have out there. It's good and bad. I think it should change. But we have to remember that there's a certain group of people who will now be priced out of the market. Mm. Right. And, you know, that's been an area what's been cushioned for others. And so those of us that are very credit conscious and are managing our credit actively are going to get reductions in price. And I've already seen that in my auto insurance and on other things. But there's also going to be a group of consumers that now can't afford insurance. And so like, in this like yeah you know with the good news comes the bad news and it's really a perspective of what side you know what what your credit looks like and what your current situation looks like so i think from a lender's perspective it's a good thing they're more accurately pricing the risk that they're holding on their books by using this additional data or insurers that makes total sense as well but at an individual level there's going to be you know winners and losers in that situation right and so when when you were a kid Did you say, I want to grow up and run a fintech company? Absolutely not. (laughs) I didn't even think about growing up when I was a kid. So could you give the the kind of how you ended up here? Yeah. So so Ken and I were working together at a company called eLoan, and I was 
working with the CEO and CMO, uh, helping them form their direct-to-consumer strategy. And as part of that, Ken was my day-to-day contact, and he used to always give me grief about consultants and you know, making sure things were operational. And we'd worked together for five years and you know, had always talked about what was the hottest, newest thing in D2C. And he said, hey, I have this idea. And you know, we kind of bounced it around a little while and talking back and forth. And all of a sudden he goes, I'd love to do this business with you. And I, I sort of stepped back, I was like, yes, that's amazing. And there was never a moment of like, are we going to build a big business? How are we going to exit? What do we think about IPOs? It was always like, this is a really intellectually stimulating problem to go solve. And Ken's the type of person that I always had wanted to work with in a business. And at that point in time, my wife and I were down in uh, Los Angeles and he was up here. And so after about six months of starting the business, we actually moved up here. Okay. But um, And when I, was that? Uh, December of 2007. And we started okay. the business in July of 2007. Right. But it's always funny because now Ken and I have worked together for over 15 years. And I'm like, we've outlasted many marriages. Yeah. <laughs> um, and still, as you can tell, like from the big smile on my face, like I still solve really fun problems. And I still love working with the people I work with. It's just, you know, we've now got a, a thousand or more extras in addition to Ken. A thousand. Which is, which is also fun. Wow. Can we go back further, though? Sure. To Ohio. Sure. Which is where my wife grew up as well. What did you study? I studied zoology. So I was pre-med in college because, you know, that totally helps you build a fintech. It does. It does. I've um, heard it's that. critical. Yep. I actually look at it now and I think like the Bachelor, the Bachelor of Arts degree gave me a lot of critical thinking skills. And so when I think about pre-med, I always think about it as like, oh, you have a hard problem. Like you put a circle around it and you're like, what's all the ins and outs? Is it the hormones? Is it the oxygen level? All of the different things. And business is actually very similar. Like, oh, you have a conversion problem or you have like a a new member problem. Like put a circle around it. What's all the ins and outs? Where do I start to find leverage to solve that problem? Or how do I dissect it? So I actually find that the degree was really valuable for like how I approach problem solving. And I'm just a curious person. So like I, you know, I could leave Credit Karma at some point in time and go solve a thousand other problems across different industries. It's more about how you think and how you approach that. Where'd you go to college? I went to Miami of Ohio. Okay. And then you came to California. Yep. So the, the story is a little tricky. I took a, a one-way ticket to Los Angeles. You actually bought a one-way ticket. I actually bought a one-way ticket. I don't know if people actually did that. <laughs> Well, I did because I was a recent grad and I had zero dollars. <laughs> yeah, 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 so yeah. I was definitely buying a one-way ticket. And there was no Expedia back then. So yeah. who knows if like I was silly and not you know paid $4 more to get the return. Yeah. But my senior year of college, I had traveled every three or four-day weekend to somewhere different in the U.S. and said, like, where do I think I'm going to be most likely to be happy? And uh, really fell in love with uh, Los Angeles and uh, the power of the ocean. Uh, I was actually just down there this weekend with my daughter and... I think out of the 36 hours in Los Angeles, we probably spent like seven to eight of them sitting on beaches nice. uh, and building sandcastles. So super fun. But um, I showed up. I didn't have a place to live. I didn't have an apartment. I didn't have a job. I didn't have any of those uh, necessary things to, to get moving in my career. But a friend of a friend had also wanted to move to L.A. And we met at the Los Angeles airport and we rented a car together for a month. And she had an uncle who lived out in Claremont. So we bunked there for like three or four days and right. found a two bedroom in Culver City and we're off to the races. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so what was your first job there? I worked at a Pizza Hut. 
So I was uh, I was driving down the road and I saw the manager in trading and you know I've you got, actually just like saw the sign. Yeah, absolutely, and it was on uh, La Cienega Boulevard, and I was like, okay, manager like, in trading, I'm here a we go. Zoologist, um, I'd like to make pizzas. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like to, to me again, it's like I grew up in a town of 1700, right? Three stoplights, one blinks. Like if you need to work, you work, and you find a job that is close and is going to to drive you to learn um but you get to work um and so that's what i did wow yeah and how long did you work at pizza hut uh for about three years so i got to the point of you know i was manager in training manager i moved on to district manager and i was managing a lot of pizza huts at a very young age and i started to kind of look around and be like well this you know i love pepsico because it was pepsico oh, of course. before it was yum yeah, yeah um and i was like but i don't really see myself in this for a long time so i had been um doing investing for quite a while and uh, had said, hey, I want to go get my Series 7, 63, 65 and become a financial planner. Um, so I oh, jumped wow. off the Pizza Hut boat and uh, started my own independent financial planning practice um, oh, and okay. started managing high net worth individual and families' money. Because that makes sense, right? That's I was going to say, so... Jump, yeah, right? You go so from Pizza Hut to financial planning. How do you kind of get it? Because obviously high net worth individuals and families... Yeah. You must be a very good salesperson. Because if you say, okay, yeah, so I've just set up my company, and then I say, what's your background? And be like, well, I manage Pizza Hut. I mean, ultimately, I, I, I knew a few people across the uh, entertainment industry, and I'd learned about different talent agents, and had went to a bookstore up in Hollywood that had a list of all the talent agents. And I put together a letter, and I just started mailing people. Just um, cold letters? Cold letters. And mailing them and following up, and was just persevered and over time I had a, a very successful practice. Wow. Yeah. So why'd you stop that? So I um, had met my wife and she had always wanted to be uh, work at a certain law firm in Boston. She was a lawyer in, in Los Angeles, but uh, had wanted to go to something a little bit more sophisticated. And, you know, she had said she had gotten the opportunity. And so we, I sold my practice and we relocated to Boston for a period of time. Oh, okay. Yeah. So then you went to Boston, then to back to LA. LA. Yeah. Right, and that's where you worked at Elon. Ken worked at Elon. I worked at a company called Compete. So when I moved to Boston and sold my practice, it's super ironic. But I literally was walking on Newbury Ave, and I saw another sign about a new company that was just starting up called Compete. <laughs> and uh, it was, you know, the old library. I don't see any credit karma signs. I feel like you should have them around the city if this is how you I find know, your right? jobs. I know, yeah. right? I do. My, my mom always picks on me that I have a Forrest Gump life. Like, I just kind of <laughs> like things just kind of happen. <laughs> it was a beautiful building, and I was looking at the architecture, and there was a sign about a new company that they were building. And it ultimately was one of the Idea Lab companies. Um, oh, okay. So it was in the old library on uh, Newbury. And so, you know, I applied for that role. And, um, you know, I was running financial services, uh, helping build the product and the go-to-market there, and uh, off and running. And ultimately, Compete had many different verticals. Financial services was one. And so that's where I met Ken. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And so you start the company in 2007. Yep. Now you have over a thousand people and you've just expanded to the UK. Has it been a kind of a steady drumbeat of growth or has there been a couple, has there been a key moment? Because obviously the, the financial world, I don't know if 2008, I presume that helped the financial crisis. Probably was painful, but helped. But I mean, how does, are there a couple like kind of key turning points for you to actually, that made this become what it is now? Yeah, and your point about 2007 and eight is right. Like it was very painful and we bootstrapped and we were, you know, very feisty on trying to make ends meet. We had gone from 300-ish offers to less than three in a couple of weeks as the offers markets. Of, offers of what? Meaning the, the credit card offers or the way that we would monetize. So there was a long period where we didn't have offers oh, okay. on our site. So our revenues were zero and our costs were high. Oh, so you had, oh, because I met, yeah, you started right at the tail end of the boom time, right? That's right. So everybody, credit was free and easy and yep. right. So you had 300 offers, and credit card offers. And then we had three. <laughs> Wow. So when they came out with the the Dodd-Frank regulation, they essentially, lenders didn't know what the rules were going to be to acquire consumers, so they just shut all acquisition. And in doing that, they they hurt the, you know, our entire monetization flywheel. But, you know, we we bootstrapped, we stuck it through, we, I love the idea, right? It's just like, when you look at something that is so critical to every American, their credit score, and them having to pay for it, it just, it felt so wrong, so... The response we were getting from the market was really great. Consumers were becoming members, they were coming back, they were providing us a lot of feedback on how valuable it was in their day-to-day lives. And mm. we knew that over time we would be able to get the monetization component of the business back up. Um, and so that happened around 2010, 2011. What happened in 2010? We were able to start putting offers back on the site. Oh, okay. So lenders started right. coming back. Okay. And then so that was we, a lean two years. Yeah. Two years. It was tough. Yeah. There was, uh, you know, times w- with no payroll and times with, you know, figuring out those those hard questions about how do you invest in your business and how much do you believe in it. Did you ever think, mm, maybe we should not do this? You know, I've never, I've never thought that. When I look back over 11 years, like I probably should have, but I'm just, I, I think it's just the optimist in me. There was nothing wrong with our business. It was like when you looked at it, it was always like, hey, we're at a point in time and like markets are cyclical and this is like a really hard moment to be in this point of the cycle. But the business was solid and people loved it and they got great value. And you know when you build a business that people are loyal to and are delivering true results in their their lives, you know you can make something of that. 
And so, you know, there was never a moment of like, oh, let's shut this down or let's walk away or this was a bad decision. Right. And so 2010, kind of the credit card companies start coming back. And then we started And was that, was that still, was it just you and Ken effectively back then? Uh, 2010, so our, uh, our third co-founder is Ryan. Um, so Ken ran product, I ran partnerships, and Ryan ran technology. Gotcha. And that was like the three-legged stool. I would say 2010, we probably, you probably know this better than I do, but we probably had, call it eight to ten employees at that point in time, but right. still very, very lean. And we had signed our first one of our first big deals with Sears Credit Score. And so, Sears Credit Score. Yeah. Oh. So we um, we were one of the first to start going into the market and white label our services. So we weren't sure like how we were. If Why we would were, Sears do that? With, I mean, would do that with you? Yeah. So they wanted to help their credit card holders. Yeah. Manage their credit better, and we were the we were the first and only uh, service that was free in market. Got you. Um, right, 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 right. And so you see a, a bunch of those uh, services provided by the banks today that actually incubated through Credit Karma. Oh, uh, okay. That concept did. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Right. And so what we started doing is the financial institutions came back onto the offers center of the service. We were able to start testing into marketing. And, you know, as we were able to accelerate the user base and at the same time have our recommendation engine working it just started to to accelerate the growth and the, the trajectory of the overall business were things like facebook ads were those important or no not at no? that stage we were a very direct response based oh, okay. uh, business and so you know we built a lot of our business off of free credit scores truly free and now as you talk about credit scores they're really you know credit karma talks about them as a means to an end so credit score is a component of your journey but ultimately, people are looking at their credit scores because they want a car or they yeah. want a new home or they want access to a certain rewards from a different credit card. So then you go from 8 to 10 and then then it's just kind of you're off to the races. It kind of becomes Pretty a much. virtuous cycle. I mean, just over like the last five years, you know, we have over 85 million members. Over the last five years, we've added 70 million of them. So the first, oh, wow. Yeah, so the first, call it... Three to five years were lean and mean times, and then we, it was that inflection point for us. And did you raise venture capital throughout this? Uh, we have. Our, our last few rounds have uh, been more secondary basis, yeah. but uh, the first couple rounds were. were when, when was the first round? So we did a seed, a raise of 500000 and then we did, I think our next investment, our Series A was QED, was led by QED. I think they invested $2 million all in. But that was back in the day. Yeah, that was probably two. That was right around the Sears credit score deal because that right. was a requirement for the investment. So it was uh, 2010, 2011 And if, if, tw- if 2008 doesn't happen, do you think Credit Karma is what it is today? I'm trying to figure out why there's been this fintech boom and there's all these companies trying to go after various bits of the whole kind of financial services world. Yeah. It does feel like some some companies have kind of benefited greatly from the kind of just the destruction of trust in the kind of the old names, the old system. I think that there's a lot of consumers that trust financial institutions for specific purposes. But is anyone going to put all of their eggs in one basket with a financial institution in today's environment? Probably not. And I don't think that's a reflection of the banks or the people that work at the banks or like their goals. But I think, you know, consumers long in the standing have not trusted. 
and it has caused it has forced other other companies or other categories to sort of come in and take away some of the margin that exists with the legacy businesses. So it's it's unfortunate, right? I, I think if you've been watching Robinhood launched for a whole day and then had to come back off the market, but Robinhood's note is, is hey, we, we can give 3% margin. That's really easy for Robinhood to do when they don't have a balance sheet. Yeah. That's really hard for a lot of other large FIs to do when you know, their NIM is 100% based on like how they can NIM. loan uh, net interest margin, like how they can loan the dollars out between the assets that they carry and the right. loans that they put in the, the loans that they put in the market. So like that's challenging. Trust is a funny thing. It's are you doing what's best for me? Again, legacy businesses have a lot of tensions inside them around like what's the right thing for the business and what's the right thing for the consumer. Yeah. And I also think being public it makes that even that, that much harder. Trust is something that we actually measure here at Credit Karma because we do believe in addition to NPS, trust is a forward-looking measure of how well we're doing in delivering consumer value. And today our numbers over 90% of our members trust us both for our service and for the offers that we recommend to them. What is NPS? Uh, Net Promoter Score. So it's more of the, it's what other companies that are a little older sometimes will use is like, would you recommend me to someone else? On a score of one to 10, am I a seven, eight, nine, or 10? Or am I a detractor or a promoter of your business? And how clear is it that you guys, because there's a few companies in the the UK, for Mm -hmm. example, that are that kind of we are your trusted source, a kind of a th- intermediary in this kind of thicket of credit card offers and loans and all this stuff. We're going to tell you what's best for you, but we're also going to take something. And it's not always clear. Mm-hmm. You know, that eventually comes out. People get pissed off because it's like, actually, well, are, do you have my best interest in mind yep. or not? Yeah. How clear is that with what you guys do? So we're, we're ex- extremely clear. And so we've you know done many things in our business to try to, to build the, the fairest marketplace possible. So first and foremost, the fees that we charge our lenders are static. So in the UK, there's many lenders who it's, it's really like who pays me the most mm-hmm. can get various ranking. Yeah, yeah. And so that doesn't exist for us. And it's something that we'll be taking over to the UK. One of the other things that we talked about earlier was how legacy systems cause tension in your business. One of the things in the UK that it's really easy for us to institute that doesn't exist for many of those marketplaces today is real rates. And I think real rates is like the miss, you know, more important than the the bounty that people are paying today. So real rates, majority of the marketplaces allow the lenders to present teaser rates meaning that you know we're going to see a 1.99 to a 19.99. Well, as a consumer, if it's 19.99, I'm not applying. This is like credit card. Credit yeah. cards, yeah, yeah. mortgages, yeah. like ranges of rates yeah. versus actual rates. Yeah, something to get you in the door before we start to gouge you. Right, that's the marketing gotcha. Yeah. Like that's not what you want from a consumer experience perspective. You want yeah. them to know what they're, what the rates are going to be so that they can make an informed decision and not have the hard inquiry and not go through the process of even if they get approved for the card, we all know it's going in the junk drawer. So it's not good for the consumer. 
it's not good for the lender because they're not getting yeah. the expected lifetime value on that. So we would never present those. And as we looked at the market, that was one of the big changes that we're excited to bring. I think it allows some lenders that have been limited in the number of cards they present to expand quite significantly. Some lenders have rules around, hey, we're not showing our offer unless it's our real rate. Oh, so what you're saying is you're not going to allow the teaser rates? Right? Absolutely. We're not allowing right. it. From day one, we're coming in and we're going to start to clean that up on the Noddle site that we own or will be owning once the FCA uh, approval is granted. Noddle's the company you bought in the UK. That's right. Or buying in the yeah. UK. Yeah. Cur- yes. Legal is going to get me yeah. for that one. <laughs> so the deal is not completed. Yeah, yeah. It's currently under application with the FCA. And just if we can break out the crystal ball. Sure. In terms of financial services, I think it's a bit more advanced in the UK, but there's a lot of kind of virtual banks. Mm-hmm. There's a whole lot of virtual kind of financial companies. But in terms of where you guys are sitting, what are you seeing in terms of how financial services are changing? Like, you know, I remember as a kid, ATMs were new, and my mom would kind of kind of have trouble with it, or do you didn't trust it or mm-hmm. whatever, and there'd always be a big line for the ATM because previously they would be going inside the bank and now it's like it's all online yeah you don't really need a physical bank where do you see the direction of travel in terms of the virtualization of financial services yeah we we talk about it a lot and it's more you know for us as well around autonomous finance and just you know autonomous finance yeah so i think about it and i'm going to take you through a a quick stepping of how things connect to drive an evolution moment so in early 2000s, you know, Google bought Waze and started to put maps online. And they were really cool because they helped me get from A to B in the yeah. shortest distance. Mm-hmm. The feedback they got was, I don't care about distance, I care about time. And so then they started to put the red, green, yellows around the map. Yeah. And when the red, green, yellows were there and I'm sitting in traffic in Los Angeles and it's saying I'm six minutes away from my destination, I could actually start to trust it. Right, the technology started to drive credibility. Yeah. And that was great. And so then all of a sudden you get to two thousand eight, two thousand and nine and Uber comes onto the, the scene. Now Uber is separating the routing, the technology from the routing from the utility of the driver. Before you expected a taxi cab driver to have both the knowledge of how to get yeah. somewhere efficiently as well as to drive you safely. But trust was built through technology around the Google Maps, which let you get in random people's car and take 20 different routes to your house that you had never taken before at all hours of the day, again, in someone else's car. And you're okay with that. You're totally cool with that, right? You don't even pay attention. You're like, oh, technology's got it, and the person's driving safely. You watch for the safety of the driver, and you're not watching the route or the of the technology. So then all of a sudden you're like, okay, you start then moving towards Tesla comes out. And all of a sudden now you're in cars regularly where people are not holding onto the wheel. So you start again to have technology build trust and credibility with the consumer that I can get you there safely. And I can use this routing technology that you've been using for a decade now. All of a sudden they start saying, can you go in self-driving cars? And people are like, yeah. I can. But you go back to 2003 when you didn't even have maps on your mobile devices and say, are you going to get in a self-driving car? And people are unfathomable. Say, Hell no. Yeah. Right? How can I trust it? The word trust is what people don't focus on that they should. Mm-hmm. And so today at Credit Karma, we're providing members our recommendations and we're monitoring, do they trust us to do that? And as they're, we're working through 
you know, what are the technologies to make it simpler? So consumers have provided us a lot of information. And when they we refer them to third-party sites, they have to put all that information in. Mm. If I went to Amazon every day and I had to put in all my information, I'd never be using Amazon. Yeah. There wouldn't be a stack of boxes in front of my door every night. Mm-hmm. But Amazon said, like, oh, well, let us help. Let us solve that problem. And that's what we're doing at Credit Karma. So consumers today will show them their information and will actually post their applications into our partner sites. Well, at some point, they're trusting that. They're getting interactions with that. They're also getting interactions with the offers that we're serving. At some point, consumers are going to say, you got it, Credit Karma. You know what I need, and you're doing it for me. So it's, again, that separation of technology and trust. And they'll be asking us, like, make good decisions for me. Help me manage my financial life. Self-driving finance. Yeah, absolutely. Autonomous finance. I like it's that. pretty cool. Yeah, that is a, but you see yeah, how, yeah, like, yeah. people are always like, oh, did you see this coming? You know, the, these opportunities. You're like, no one could see Google Maps, yeah. Uber, and Tesla providing this rich environment that build off of each other with technology as that foundational layer that allow trust in a new type of system, right? It's the same thing with us. We've been, you know, very... Um, Lucky's the wrong word. We, we've seen opportunities in the market and we've made pivots to move into areas where we can continue to build trust. So we talk with our members or we talk internally about the three pillars, transparency, certainty, and simplicity. I have said those words for 11 years. We're trying to help people know what the real rates are, transparency. We're trying to make sure that they know that they can get approved, that's certainty. And simplicity is we're trying to allow technology to do that on their behalf. It's when those three come together, very much like Google, Uber, and Tesla, that you get to a world of self-driving finance. Right. Effectively, what you're talking about is almost like the appification of yeah. finance. Do How do kind of the old school feel about that, whether you're kind of like your local stockbroker at Morgan Stanley or whatever, or your local bank branch, Wells Fargo, or whatever? Do they see you as a threat? I mean, I imagine they see you as a partner, but it kind of reminds me of Netflix. You know, back in the day, they were just like paying whatever to get all these libraries, mm-hmm. which kind of brought the you know to the big studios, which brought people in the door. And once they had people in the door, then they could start making their own stuff. And now they're killing everybody. Yeah. At a certain point, you know, the kind of the the worm turns, and people are like, "Oh, maybe that wasn't such a good idea." Yeah, I, I think there's always guy. a question of who are you solving problems for. And one of the things that's been very clear for us for day one is we are a consumer-oriented company. And so the question that we ask ourselves isn't as much of what will our financial partners think, because we we talk to them regularly. Consumer's the one, you are the one A. You're as close as you can get, but in any debate, the consumer's always going to win, and it's always going to be designed for the consumer. You ask a consumer, and this is absolutely what they want. They want more time back in their life. They want technology to provide them seamless, frictionless experiences that take away sort of this information arbitrage and this like nervousness of like, am I getting the best thing? I want certainty around that, right? I, I wanna I wanna have confidence that I'm getting the best for my my financial situation. And no one's doing that for them. So for the one percent, two percent, five percent that many of the financial institutions make money off of, they're still going to want the white glove service, and that's still going to work. But democratizing and making it available to the other 95 or 99%, like that's what Credit Karma is all about. Right. Many of the things that we start with, they're not for the wealthy. 
there for, you know, the 1,700 people in the town that I grew up in. It's right. making their lives better and giving them time back and making sure that they pay less on their loans. So according to the internet, you guys are worth about $4 billion. So says the internet. So it's got to be true. Super, super true and super cool. <laughs> and you mentioned earlier about the idea that you don't have um, public shareholders to answer to. Mm-hmm. Is going public a thing, a plan, a goal? Yeah. Um, it is not a plan. Like it's not something that's on our radar. We've always said that um, IPOs solve problems, and they Create either solve brand credibility problems, mm. access to fund problems, or liquidity problems. And we've been able to solve those problems internally. Whether that's through our, you know, our our most recent raise with Silver Lake, that was the secondary. So the teams got to participate in taking some shares off the table. And we don't have a brand credibility problem and we don't have an access to capital problem. So there's not really a problem to solve. And what I've seen and heard from so many of my peers is that when you start managing to the market, you don't take the big swings. And, you know, I think Ken, Ryan and myself have always been about what's the exponential? Like, what's the next big idea? And, you know, you have an entrepreneur led company. And we're going to continue to be entrepreneurial and going to new countries and introducing new categories of services and doing that in a tech-savvy way are swings that we still want to take. And um, they're large opportunities and opportunities that we couldn't do if we were in a public market environment. So what's the next big swing? Yeah, well, I think the UK is a huge swing. So it's going. It's one of our... Because this is your first... Going outside beyond the borders, so to speak? It's beyond the borders of North America. So we did right. launch in Canada two okay. years ago, and there were a couple incumbents, very similar story Canada to the UK. Count. That's fine. Uh, counts, <laughs> it counts. Just yeah, kidding. 35 million consumers. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, uh, yeah we're now yeah. actually at 2 million consumers in under two okay. years, and far and away the largest personal finance service oh, wow. in Canada. Um, so great relationships with eight of the top 10 banks up there as well. So UK is our first, uh, you know, Going the across Atlantic. the waters, yeah. like jumping over. But, you know, the market is the market is very ready. If you, you look at a lot of the services, they're layered instead of fully integrated. They're long-term based on things that are good for business, but not necessarily best for the consumer. And those are the areas we look to, to make improvements. Right. And then I just have one more question. In terms of on this IPO question, you know, you look at like Airbnb and Uber and these, you know, mega unicorns yep. that are worth tens of billions and they've stayed. Someone needs to come up with a new name. Like, you I know. really, like, everyone in journalism oh. should be coming up with a new unicorn name and seeing what's I know, stays. like a the water buffalo or. Like, Aileen Lee, like, she just owns that unicorn name, right? I know. So, I know. like, it's just sitting there. Do you know what they call them in Canada? No. Narwhals. They don't really call them narwhals, do they? They do. That's amazing. It's awesome, <laughs> but it sticks. So you got to come up with your mega yeah, unicorn. I know. I know. But maybe they're like woolly, woolly mammoths. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, woolly mammoth. I kind of like that one. <clears throat> yeah, well, we'll keep see. Trying. Yeah, I'll keep trying. <laughs> I'll workshop that. But this idea that these companies got so big privately, mm-hmm. again, there does seem to be more private money around than ever before. Mm-hmm. I mean, presumably that's helped you, or do you, I mean, if this was five years ago, ten years ago, this would have been a very different conversation. You guys probably would have had to have gone public by now. Just Right. So there used to be a rule prior to the 2011 legislation that I think it was after 50 or 500 shareholders, you had to start reporting to the SEC. Right. And the second you start reporting to the SEC, might you as might well. as well be public, right? Yeah. And so... Um, 
the unicorns, the mega unicorns, the woolly mammoths, there was just no chance for them to exist. So we absolutely would have been public by now had it, had it been in prior times. And I think it's uh, uncharted territory and it's for all of us to figure mm. out what's the, the best way to manage it. It is, you know, a different environment because you still have a lot more entrepreneurial led companies and, you know, you have to find the way to be disciplined and balanced and make sure you're running it like a public company, but yet you're taking those swings in a safe way. What was your worst day of work ever? Worst day of work. Um, it was actually probably very early on. We joke around about FedExes here. We launched the site in February of 2008. And we were being scrappy. So we had found someone in the mortgage department of TransUnion to do an agreement with. Completely, we answered everything, honestly and ethically. But uh, like five days after being live, you know, we're seeing people come in, onesies, twosies, some 10. We end up on Reddit. And uh, we're starting to, you know, get to like 100 users, which was a big number. We were super excited. And we get a FedEx from TransUnion saying like, hey, we're uh, deciding to cancel this agreement. That day was just like, it was the roller coaster of like what startups are all about. Like, I'm seeing the number scale, like different viral sites are happening. Consumers are going, this is amazing. And then it's like, oh my God, it's going to go away in 30 days if we don't figure this problem out. Like, true roller coaster. And that was a really, really, really hard day. So for me, especially since I was in charge of the partnerships, like not doing my part in helping get right. started in the right way, that was probably one of my hardest days. So what happened? We continued to be scrappy and we got to John Danaher, who's the president of TransUnion Consumer Interactive. And um, you got to him to do like kind of... No, golf course or something no no we emailed him and you know it's like those lucky moments right where he was scheduled to be in san francisco for ad ad tech week and uh, we were like can we talk and he's like sure right and we sat down with him he's like what are you guys doing and it's like well you know he's like well i never would have allowed this but now i've got all these people all these consumers out there saying this is amazing is exactly what we want like what am i supposed to do and we were like you're supposed to work with us right (laughs) um and we've had a great relationship so john's still at transunion 11 years in and is still managing you know our relationship with is within his division and part of transunion's you know, growth has been through Credit Karma's growth. Right. So it's been, you know, just a really great relationship over the years. And when he said he weren't supposed to do this, I mean, the, was it the this very idea of free credit reports? Yeah. Because that was, that was the thing, right? That was yeah. kind of what set you guys apart initially? Absolutely. So other places were marketing it as free, but after seven days, they'd start charging yeah. nineteen ninety nine or what have you. And you know, there's conversations we've had with different brands that have said, hey, when you guys were making it free and accelerating it, we were in the boardrooms figuring out making it harder, how to make it harder for people to cancel. And that's just like what's good for the business right. or what's good for the consumer. And we've always, you know, landed in that what's good for the consumer. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Nicole for being so generous with her time. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I know I found the, especially the bit about this whole idea of this, you know, kind of self-driving finance as a really interesting concept. I'm not sure I totally buy into it myself, handing that much control over to effectively just, you know, a company. It's a bit unsettling to me, but who knows? Maybe I'm just old. 
Um, anyway, that is it. I will be writing this week. Actually, there'll be a profile of Nicole in the paper. So do check that out. I'll be writing about various other things from out here in the valley. So do pick up a paper or, you know, download it. Log in, thetimes.co.uk. You can also find me on Twitter, at Danny Fortson. You can email me, danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. And stay tuned for next week. We've got lots of good stuff coming. I'm not going to spoil it, but we've got some great guests coming up. So keep an eye on your feed, and thanks again for listening. Bye-bye. listening to me daisy apple's iphone disassembly robot is dismantling an iphone into lots of recyclable parts that's how apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods thanks daisy there's more to iphone even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.